0: Did you know that today there are over 11 million illegal immigrants running around this country? We're being overrun by illegals. We have no way to stop them until we build a wall. You know we're all immigrants. Some of us have just been here a little longer than others. Walls will not make America great. When seconds count, the police are just minutes away. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. You know only law-abiding citizens obey gun control laws. You know every day over a hundred people are killed by guns? Something has to be done. We need strict laws to prevent these dangerous toys from falling into the wrong hands. It's clear from the Bible that men were appointed to be the head of the household. Jesus appointed 12 apostles, 12 men, to be the head of his church. He didn't ordain women then. He wouldn't do it today. Jesus had many women followers Throughout the history of the Bible, women have played a vital role in leadership among God's people. Let us recognize God's ability to call whomever he will. You know, I could go on with a few more examples. I might get hung or stoned (laughs) if nothing else is clear from these examples. One thing should be obvious. We are more divided today than we have ever been before. We're divided as a nation, and yes, sadly, we are even divided as a church. These are just a few of the hottest political topics in America, and yes, even in the church today. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce the topic for today's message, which I've called simply, the right to be wrong. You know, if you're like me, you probably have some strong opinions on these subjects and others. I heard a few people saying amen at a time or two, and I was going back and forth here. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what side I'm on, because uh, that doesn't really matter today. If you ask me another time, I might. But uh, <laughs> I know many sincere and godly people who stand on all sides of these and other issues. Intelligent people. People who read the same Bible that I read, people who attend the same church that I go to, people who kneel beside me and pray to the same Jesus that I pray to, have different opinions than I do on these very topics and many others that we could bring up. And it begs the question, how do we as Christians relate to our brothers and sisters who see the world differently from us? Do we have a duty to correct their thinking? Perhaps. (laughs) Do we need to go and find other people who think more like we do and distance ourselves from the people who think differently than us? You know, the internet has made it super easy to do exactly that. You know, it used to be if we wanted to have friends, we kind of had to be friends with people who lived near us because that's all the people that we could be friends with and especially if you live in a rural place like Kentucky, you're kind of limited on some of your options sometimes. We were kind of forced to get along with people we didn't agree with, just because we had to get along with them or be a hermit, right? But but nowadays, we don't have to do that. You know, we're bombarded with information from all over. We, we have so much information coming to us from all sides, and it's just easy just to kind of pigeonhole ourselves into, this is what I grew up with, this is what I believe, and this is how I continue to believe. And when we're faced with other ideologies, it's easy just to distance ourselves from those and from the people that may be promoting them. You know, I, I'm friends with a lot of you on Facebook. In fact, I have a lot of friends on Facebook, more than I can keep track of, really. And if someone posts something on Facebook and says, blah, 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 and I say, I don't agree with that, I can just go click, unfriend, I'm never going to hear from you again. That's the world that we live in. You know, it makes me really afraid. Honestly. It really makes me afraid because I believe that we're losing a key ability of humankind. I believe that we're losing our ability to have meaningful conversations with people who don't think the same way that I think. We're losing the ability to examine our own beliefs To think critically and make ourselves vulnerable and have rational discussions with other people who see the world differently. Now, let me say this. I'm not saying we shouldn't have strong beliefs. I think it's important. You know, I like to think that I'm a bit of a, of a, uh, scientist. Um, I've always been fascinated by science and I, I like to study physics and, and chemistry and astronomy and all kinds of things like this. But you know, as much as I like to be critical perhaps of my own understandings and think with an open mind, I don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I wonder if the law of gravity still works. Let me roll out of bed and see if I still hit the floor like I did yesterday when I tried this. No, it, it didn't, it doesn't quite work that way because I am thoroughly convinced that the law of gravity works. It's not going to reverse overnight. I'm not going to wake up with some new revelation and hit the ceiling because It's a fundamental law. In the same way, I'm convinced that God's word, the Bible, is the infallible authority that we can follow. I can talk with people who are convinced otherwise, but I'm not going to give up my conviction in God's word because I've seen too much evidence, just like I've seen for the law of gravity, I've seen too much evidence to ever have to question God's promises for me. I don't ever have to question whether God loves me, because no matter what may come at me, no matter what evidence you might present to the contrary, I've seen too much evidence for God's love to ever have to question that. So I'm not saying that we just question everything, okay? That's not what I'm saying. We have pillars of truth upon which we stand. We've studied, for example, about the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week, and I can see if I believe God's word from Genesis to Revelation, I see no evidence of anything but the Sabbath being on the seventh day of the week. I'm not questioning that, although I I like to have uh, good discussions with people who see otherwise. I'm not questioning that in my mind. We have to be firm. We have to be firm on God's word. But do you suppose that sometimes we could be too sure of ourselves when it comes to our own opinions? Is it possible to lift words and phrases from God's word, from the truth, and barricade ourselves into an ideology, putting together the puzzle pieces of truth according to our own preconceived ideas until it keeps us from recognizing the one who is truth? In a word, have we come to the point where we fail to consider the possibility that we could even be wrong? Have we come to a place in our society where we refuse to have open and honest conversations with those who don't agree with us? Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So my friends, this is not a message designed to shake your faith in God. But perhaps it is designed to shake our faith in ourselves. Let me give you an example. When I was 12 years old, my family lived, actually moved to British Columbia. And uh, we moved away from all of the, the young friends that I had known. We moved to another uh, another country, in fact. We'd never lived in Canada. Um, but I loved reading. I loved learning about computers and science. And I loved studying the Bible. And right up, leading up to this time, my family had just done some real deep study into this topic of righteousness by faith. And as a twelve year old I had studied some on my own, and I'd I'd heard some of these different discussions. And you know how a twelve-year-old digests things and doesn't always maybe put all the puzzle pieces together quite right. But as a twelve year old I got this idea uh, of righteousness by faith, this idea about how we can we can stand before God. And it was based in Matthew chapter one and verse twenty-one. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And from that one text, from that one context, I got this idea that in order to be right with God, I've got to try really, really, really hard to keep God's Ten Commandments and to do everything exactly right. And if I, if I try really hard and if I'm really sincere and Jesus can see that I'm really sincere, then he'll forgive my sins and eventually... He'll help me keep it, keep his law, and then eventually, if I'm good enough, he'll save me. And that was the idea that I had. And, and I had come across these other people who believed and talked about God's grace, and I called it cheap grace. You just do anything you want to do, or just say Jesus, and he'll save you. There is such a thing as cheap grace, but, but I had this idea, and, and I realize now that we call that legalism. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. You've got to try hard. You've got to try hard. And that was my theology. And I would go to Sabbath school and the Sabbath school teacher, and I would, I would would he would be talking about grace and I would pick a fight with him. Every week I would pick a fight with him. I'd pick an argument with him. You are teaching cheap grace. You've got to keep the law in order to be saved. And that was my theology. My family moved to Kentucky. And about a year and a half later, um, My brother and I were taking Bible studies from our pastor, Pastor Sam. And many of you know Pastor Sam. Sam Solaire. And we got into this topic of faith and works and righteousness by faith. And I started to argue with him, just like I did with my Sabbath school teacher in Canada. And, you know, he didn't argue back with me. He sat down next to me. I'm not dying to doubt my Sabbath school teacher. My Sabbath school teacher was trying to do this too, Okay. But Pastor Sam sat down with me and he opened the Bible and he pointed out some verses that I hadn't really considered before. And he put some verses together in a way that I hadn't really thought about before. And as we studied and as we prayed, and I know he was praying, it's like the light turned on in my mind. And I realized that oh, as passionate as I was and for as much as I was using the Bible to defend my position, that I was mistaken. And that the grace of God truly is unmerited favor. And it's presented to us not as a reward held up at the end of our lives for good obedience, but only on the merits of Christ's blood and his sacrifice. Yeah. And that I can accept it now. And that I can have forgiveness. And that as a result, then I can go on and, 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 and live and follow God's law because he has saved me and not in order to, in order to earn some kind of merit. And it revolutionized my life. And I came to the foot of the cross there in that Bible study with Pastor Sam. And I was baptized. It was June 27 of 1998. I sealed my commitment through baptism. And since that day, my friends, I have never looked back. I've never second-guessed my commitment, but I have to say, I've continued to grow in my understanding. Just a few years ago, I did another study into righteousness by faith, and how does this tie into end time events, and how does this tie into, into our understanding of the rest of the Bible? And again, I, can we say, corrected, modified my position? Again, I realized that I had been living in a sort of legalism, and, and that I had, even though I had accepted God's grace in 1998, I had kind of shifted back to the way I was thinking before that time. And again, I had to recommit myself to living by God's grace. You know, there's probably a lot of other things in my life where I am totally convinced that I'm right, and I still haven't quite got it all together. And if you wonder about that, you can probably ask my wife. She she probably knows a few of those things. Although she's nice enough, she probably won't tell you. (laughs) But uh, I do tend to be thick-headed sometimes. I'll tell you that. But that brings me back to the topic of my message today. Like I said, I'm calling this a right to be wrong. What do I mean by a right to be wrong? Well, simply this, I I mean that I have been wrong so many times. Sincerely wrong, yeah, but I've been wrong. And now, when I meet someone else, and I know you're wrong. Do I give that person the same kind of grace that I would want to have and that I have had all the times that I have been wrong? Do I treat that person as a son or daughter of God? Or do I shun their friendship? Do I unfriend them on Facebook? Do I discard them as a person? Do I go and find better friends because I don't want to deal with your point of view? Do I lose my convictions when I am friends with someone who sees things differently? Does it taint my character to have associations with other people? If I am a Republican, can I be friends with a Democrat? Not to get politics I'm not using that as an example. You know what I'm talking about. Do I realize that there are things that I can learn, even though I may be Thoroughly firm in my point of view that there are things that I could learn from someone else who has a totally opposite point of view. I don't know anyone uh, personally who's a member of the Flat Earth Society, but I have, I have read a little bit about it and, um, actually kind of fascinating, but I don't have any intentions of joining the Flat Earth Society, but I, I would love to have a conversation sometime with someone who is. Because I think there's things that I could learn from someone who has a totally different perspective on the world than the way most of us see things. Can I be friends with someone who doesn't agree with me? Simply put, can I allow someone else, can I allow the other people in my life the right to be wrong? I'm not talking about pluralism. You know what pluralism is, right? Pluralism teaches that there's no absolute truth. Nothing is absolutely true. You see, I can believe something, you can believe the opposite, and we can both be right. Well, that just doesn't logically make sense, for one thing. I can't say that everything is true, all opinions are equal. We can. I can say, I can respect your right to be wrong, without discarding you as a person, without discarding our relationship or our friendship. But is this biblical? Is it biblical to say that we can allow others the right to be wrong? Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 39, and if you will turn there with me, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And skipping down to verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. I'm not saying we should count people who disagree with us as enemies, but if we do, what are we supposed to do? Love them, (laughs) love them, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. And listen to this. This I believe is the punchline. How does God treat those who disagree with him? How does God treat those who are totally in the wrong? For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Think about that. God, the God of the universe, do you suppose that he could make the sun to shine only on the Seventh day Adventist church and put an eternal cloud of darkness over all the other churches in town. He's God. He could do that, couldn't he? Everyone would know that we're the right church, right? He, he did it for the Israelites. Yeah. But he doesn't do that. He makes his sun to shine on the evil and the good. He sends the rain. And I'm not saying all the other churches are evil. Don't get me, don't go out here and misquote me, right? But what I'm, what I'm saying is, God loves everyone. He blesses everyone regardless of whether we reciprocate, of whether we return that love. In Luke 6.35, from the same uh, sermon, just in a different gospel, for he is kind to the thankful and the evil. And in Psalms 145 and verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. Isn't that so amazing that God loves everyone no matter whether we agree with him, no matter whether we even accept him. Let's take it a step further. Romans 5 and verse 8. I think this is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. If you're here long enough, you'll hear me quote it again and again because it's my favorite verse. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, this is the heart of the gospel, that while we were running away from God, while we wanted nothing to do with him, while we were killing him, he came here and died for you and for me, just to demonstrate that he loves us and he wants that relationship with us. And he'll take every ounce that we give him. If we give him an inch, he'll take it. And he'll he'll go a mile with that to do good things for you and for me. But he doesn't force himself on us. It's like he wrote a million dollar check. More than a million dollar, really. And he laid it on the table. And he's like, you can take it or leave it. I don't care. I'm not going to force you to have it. Of course, my question for you is, why would you leave it lying there on the table? Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He gives us a choice to choose to serve him or not. And I believe, my friends, that this is the foundation principle of religious liberty. This is the principle that our nation was built upon because our our founding fathers, now no, they weren't all Christians, but I believe they understood enough of the Bible to realize that God does not dictate our conscience. Amen. And the power of the state can't be exercised to try to help the church, to try to support the church, to try to enforce the worship of God. And every time that that has happened through history, we've seen the church being flooded with people who have no, want to have nothing to do with God. They're there for political influence, they're there because of fear of punishment, and the, the church becomes so corrupted that the true followers of God have had to go underground and have faced immense persecution for centuries and centuries and centuries because of this this co-mingling of church and state, using the power of the state to support the church and then using the influence of the church to sway or to, to change the laws of the state. And when this nation was established, the United States of America, it was built right into our com- Constitution. The Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And I, I'm still thankful to live In a land of freedom. The the land of the free and the home of the brave. A land where we can come to church without fear that anyone's going to come bursting through those doors and say, we're the police, we're arresting all of you because you're worshiping in a church. That happens in many, many countries. I'm so thankful for this land of freedom. But my friends, I guess my question is for you today. Yes, I believe we need to support... Religious liberty, and I think every one of you received one of these little flyers um, that talks about religious liberty and how we can support the cause of religious liberty uh, in our town, in our area, in this state, in this country. And I think it's so important. But but I'm getting on to my point, and that is even more than than giving money to religious liberty. What about us? What about us here in the church? Can we have religious liberty in our church? Maybe put it a different way. Could we have religious intolerance even within our church? Now, I'm, I mean, we have to play by different rules, I guess, in a sense. Um, here in a church, we we do have things that we stand for. Like I said, we stand for the Bible. We stand for the person of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I'm not going to compromise those principles in order to, to uh, cater to the opinions of someone who comes and says, no, I don't want to believe in all that. I don't think we should do that. But what I'm asking is this. Can we, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, give our brothers and our sisters the freedom, the liberty to believe things that I don't necessarily agree with? What does it say? Jesus says he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In summary, in the Bible, God has revealed to us his truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I don't believe that there are many roads to heaven. I believe that there's one road. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way, as I said before. But God does not force anyone. In fact, the very foundational principle of his government is the principle of love. And love cannot be forced. He doesn't coerce his creatures. He stands in invitation. And whether in our nation or whether even in our church, can we be like Jesus, standing an invitation to receive the truth and yet with a heart as big as God's to embrace all of humanity in love, whether or not you agree with me. Over the past two centuries, our nation has struggled with great divides. And I don't think this was ever more apparent than during the Civil War in the 19th century. At the heart of this struggle was this question, how do we treat our brothers and sisters of color? Or how do we treat those who support this institution of slavery, as opposed to how do we treat those who oppose this institution of slavery? And brothers and sisters and fathers and sons found themselves on opposite sides of the line, shooting and killing each other, in their own families even. Today, my friends, we again find ourselves in a nation that is divided and even in a church that in many ways is divided. How do we see those who are on the other side of the line? Do we view them as the enemy? If so, what did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. My friends, I hope that we can recognize in those who disagree with us Not enemies, but brothers and sisters who are struggling along the same road. If you picture a wheel, a wheel of an old wagon or cart, all around there's a rim and all around there are spokes coming together. Each one of those spokes is going a different direction. But as you go towards the hub of the wheel, no matter which spoke that you are traversing, eventually you come to the center. And I believe that God, perhaps this is not a crude illustration, but I believe that God can use people who come from very different directions, from very different perspectives. But if we are sincere and faithful, if we are studying God's word through prayer, that he can lead us all to the center in Christ. My friends, I believe that today we're living in the closing days of this earth's history. I believe that very soon our eyes will see the glory, of the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ, in the clouds of heaven. And no matter what side of the issues we may be found on now, I pray that in that day we may stand on the side of Christ, for his truth goes marching on.